Welcome to episode 13 of Shebrews Hebrews, a Jewish fermenting podcast where we hope to discuss all things homebrewing and fermenting. Today we're talking about brining and Thanksgiving. I'm your host, Evan Harris, and with me today is my co-host, Allison Shea. Hey there, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well, yourself? I'm good. It's good Excited to hear. For reference, today is Monday, November 22nd. We are T-minus three days to Thanksgiving. Or I guess at this point, it's more like uh, two days and 40 minutes because <laughs> it's 11.20 yeah. at night here on the East Coast. So yeah, about 49 hours for you. Yep. Did I send you the meme on tw- I found on Twitter about how Americans are having one Shabbat this Thursday and they're making a huge deal about it? <laughs> no, I haven't, but that's great. I'll see if I can uh, find it again and link it in the show notes because it, that's Thanksgiving is a great time, but it is a little more common for some of our listeners week (laughs) have a great i hope everybody has a wonderful thanksgiving which is probably something i will say again at the end uh but absolutely yeah we are kind of used to the big meal every week thing Uh, exactly it's a, a little different for most of the american population i know i've at least i know at least some of our uh listeners are not actually jewish so we may be able to impart some knowledge on them as well, as well as anyone who's cooking their Thanksgiving meal, though. At this point, uh, you're rushing. Yeah, uh, we are going to <laughs> maybe scare you a little bit on this. But if you are prepping your turkey, or if you are in charge of cooking the turkey, and you haven't already started prepping it, you are behind. Yes. Sorry, folks, but time to hurry up. Yeah, uh, um, because turkeys are huge and turkey preparation takes a lot of time. I say this as somebody who has never actually cooked a whole turkey. I have only ever made the legs and thighs because it's not worth it. I Okay, this will show up again, <laughs> probably. I am a turkey hater. I mm-hmm. think that the breast is dry and not worth eating. The legs and thighs are fine. They usually end up overcooked because people spend too much time focusing on on the breast of the turkey. Not worth it, guys. Just make the legs and thighs. You will be much happier, and also they taste much better. So my opinion on making <laughs> turkeys, so I have bought a full turkey and cooked a full turkey, just not all at once. My opinion on turkey which is, is a much not, better idea. it should not be cooked as a single piece. If you cook turkey breast by itself, you cut them. You can do it on the bone still, but you cook them separately from the thighs. You can get an incredibly moist, delicious turkey breast, especially if you brine it. Yes. Um, But if you cook them all together, don't. And also, they will all cook faster if you break the turkey down. Yeah. So you you get a little bit of that time back that you're so behind on if you're listening to this. Oh, yeah. But today's topic is brining. We did forget something, though. I don't know if it's relevant to this episode. It's not relevant for me because I was the designated driver tonight. But what are you drinking today? I'm not drinking anything right now, actually. I was uh, watching a hockey game and I had Guinness with dinner. But last night I went to a Jews Brews event. I mentioned the first time when we did the brewing. Last night was a distribution and drinking event, which was fun. So last night I was drinking a Belgian double that was made with myself and a bunch of other Jews in uh, Utah. Awesome. Have a good time. It was. It was fun. It was fun. I didn't have much last night because I had to drive, but it was fun and got to see a bunch of people who I don't see that often. That's awesome. New friends. 
Exactly. And I sent you at least some photos of the floofs at the event. Yes, they looked wonderful. 12 out of 10 wood pet. They were wonderful. And the, the really fluffy cat, Crookshanks, was in my lap at one point. Oh, what a perfect baby. She was wonderful. I have not pet a cat since I left Lou. Yeah. They're all, they're all excellent. Those of you who have pets, please do us a favor. Pet them and tell them I love them. Send photos of your pets. Yes. Send photos of your pets also. But also tell them that I love them and give them pets because they're good and they deserve pets. Absolutely. Maybe a nice treat. Yeah. They can have a little turkey as a treat. Yes. (laughs) 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 can have a little salami as a treat. That is still a wonderful meme. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Back to the topic at hand, though. Brining. Two major methods of brining a turkey. You have a wet brine which is basically a liquid marinade. Definition of a brine, by the way. Should start with that. A brine is a salt solution. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the times when you hear about brines, people will include talking about adding vinegars in, but at their most basic, a brine is a salt solution. This, I know the term dry brine is used often when cooking meats, but a dry brine is really... It is still a salt solution, but instead of going into an external water source, it's getting dissolved into the moisture of the meat itself. So interesting. It's still a salt solution and it absorbs really well. And it's a good way to really penetrate your meat with all sorts of flavors because you're not diluting the salt with anything. Mm -hmm. It's just the only thing that it can dissolve into would be either, I guess, the moisture in the air if you really want to add that in there. But yeah. mostly it's, it can just dissolve into the moisture of your protein. And that's going to make for uh, good flavor. And also, unlike a marinade, you can get... Well, I mean, obviously you can do it with a marinade. But it's a lot easier to get crispy skin with a dry brine. Exactly. having the Because the brine dries out, partially dries out the... Skin, if you're doing a, a skin on cut like a turkey or chicken or duck. You which, should, because yeah. fat is flavor, and flavor is good. Yeah, there are a few times I will use boneless, skinless chicken, but most of the time I, I bone bone skin on is tons of flavor. But if you're just by the cell, by itself, skin on is the way to go. I think the only time... Or the only times I ever really bothered with boneless, skinless chicken were when I made chicken roulade, which um, is a recipe that, oh, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That sounds good. No, my, my normal one but, is for, um, to, to, when I do chicken, tikka masala. Oh, oh um, right. I guess I did put it into curries. Yeah, well, like a curry, a boneless, skinless doesn't matter as much. But yeah, uh, but, but brining that, you, you still should brine if you're cooking it off beforehand. Yeah. Um, one other thing, even when I do, when I did make roulades, <laughs> it's been a long time since then. When I did make roulades or chicken cutlets or curries, I always tried to, if I could get my hands on it, boneless and skinless thighs rather mm-hmm. than breast because again it's just the juicier meat i don't i don't 
<laughs> this is going to show up so many times this episode. I do not understand the point of, or I understand the point of part of the animal. Um, but I, I just feel like you can get so much more enjoyment and flavor out of dark meat than you do out of white meat. So uh, I'm, I'm a firm advocate. You know, I would, I would agree with you for the most part. There are almost any recipe I will tend to be more likely to use chicken thigh than yeah. breast. So the dark meats over the light meats. Though I do prefer, interestingly, duck breast to most preparations of duck thigh, which is not as common a meat, but. Okay. I love duck. Oh, it is so good. Duck is delicious. It is my dad's favorite food, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. I think that it just has such a different flavor. Yeah. Um, and like eating a duck breast cooked re- cooked really well. Not mm-hmm. not well as in well cooked, but like yeah, but as in done properly. Yes, a great preparation. It feels like you're eating a red meat. Almost. Oh yeah, because you you don't need to cook duck or goose as much as you do chicken or turkey. I don't like goose though. I have had goose. I don't remember the last time I had it, so I can't really say much. But one of my favorite meals is duck, like the legs. I prefer confit. Duck confit, leg confit oh, yeah. is absurdly good. Oh I, yeah. I need yet next time. I need to try and find um, duck to do that with because you can sous vide it, and that would honestly be a better Thanksgiving meal than most turkeys. Yeah, I mean, most. I think that most things would be a better meal than a turkey. But again, I'm a turkey hater. You know, this like, is yeah. going to be a recurring statement. The the time the best turkey I made was when I did when I as I broke it apart. And I still dry on dry brined both parts. I did a Roland for the breast for one breast. I just sous vide the other, and I did a low and slow roast of the legs or for the thigh and leg. And all every single meal I had from that was delicious. And I did that last year in the midst of the pandemic. Nice. I think so. I've only <laughs> I've only actually cooked a turkey, I think, twice. But I, again, not a whole yeah. turkey. But one time my cousin came over. We really don't usually do Thanksgiving dinner. My parents, we usually go. Uh, two family friends, and we do Thanksgiving with them. So, shout out to Toby and Nessa for being fantastic hosts for, like, a decade and a half. <laughs> <laughs> we are not going to be with them this year because of COVID, but we, for very, very long time, we always went to their place for Thanksgiving, but the one of the two years I can remember doing it at home my cousin David was over and he ha- he found this recipe that we decided to use that was absolutely fantastic. I, just, I can't even remember when this was. It must have been ages ago. It must have been in junior high, maybe high school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So upwards of a decade ago. But we roasted garlic and mashed it up with rosemary and sage and some other herbs and lots of salt. And we shoved it underneath the skin. Ooh. Um, and we Which let is it techni- sit there for a while. It is technically brining to do that if you let it sit. We let it sit. Oh, that sounds and really good. Because we put it underneath and because it was dry, we ended up with really nice crispy skin on there. And man, that was that was just 
great. That sounds really good. No, I, I've not done after Thanksgiving. I might buy a turkey to try to break it apart and try some random stuff just for fun. <laughs> yeah. Spatchcockage and spat. Yeah, spatchcock. <laughs> a whole turkey, and see if you can find like an oven or a smoker. Okay, well, if I if- find a smoker, actually, the friend who um, the friend who had the Jubers event with the cat has a smoker because she and her boyfriend go trout fishing in the summers. Okay. And they do smoke trout. Evan, can you do te- me a favor? I will test her and see if we can spat- smoke a whole turkey spatchcock. I okay. If they are people who go fishing for trout and and smoke them themselves, I feel like they would appreciate the silliness of just spatchcocking an entire turkey. Okay. For <laughs> spatchcocking is a pro oh there is there is actually you can Google spatchcocking a turkey. And it, it appears to be a real thing. And not just memes. No, I barbecue guys, USA oh, yeah. premium cuts whole. Mm. Yeah, How to spatchcock a turkey? Foodnetwork.com. Okay, so you might need for, a, you might need a table saw to get the <laughs> to get the uh, spine out. Oh yeah. So for reference, spatchcocking is where you take the spine out of the bird. So the center of the top, pull out that bone. Normally, it's done on the chicken, and mm-hmm. then you smash it flat. Not literally smash it flat, but you spread it out into like a butterfly. Yeah. Which is a term you will often hear, like a butterfly chicken. But you spread it out flat, and then with spatchcocking, I think you usually press it. Is that right? Yeah. No, you don't. You don't always put it under active weight, but you can, especially chicken, and it helps get the because the breast and thighs stretch at different rates. It helps even them out. Uh, I feel like it's worth why. reminding people that I don't really eat meat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've no. Uh, Spatchcock. In fact, when I googled spatchcock turkey, the first thing was spatchcock turkey brine is the uh, recommended autocorrect huh. due to recent activity. <laughs> yeah, our, our Google searches must be real weird sometimes. Yes, we should. Well, the ancient Romans and Jews did not have turkeys because they are uh, a they are a new world food. Also worth noting that the kosh root status of turkeys is an interesting one mm-hmm. as is the kosh root status of many birds in the new world so because yeah. it if i recall like birds are one of the least well-defined areas of kosh root like everything else there's pretty strict rules choose cloven hoofs choose its cud for mammals etc yeah so there's a lot of basically there's a list of birds that are not kosher, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much all old world of birds. And we don't really have a great way of defining what they are and aren't. But people usually say, okay, if it's a bird of prey, then, like a tree bird of prey, mm-hmm. then we don't want to eat it. So, come to the New World, and there's all sorts of birds that are not on the previously listed known non-kosher birds that's right i feel like i'm getting something wrong no it it, i don't think there are any kosher birds of prey not nothing in the falcons Um, yeah so basically 
There's a list of birds that are not kosher. Here's here's a better descriptor. The Mishnah states every bird that is one doress, a predator, is not kosher. Every bird that has two, an extra toe, three, a, a, a zephek, crop, ingluvius, I don't know what that means, and a four, and four, a corkuvan gizzard, or puppet in Yiddish, that can be peeled is kosher. Um, mm-hmm. I do not know enough about the biology of birds, and this is something that many rabbis have argued over many, many times, but the crux of the matter is... <laughs> People come to the new world. They see all these new birds that they are unfamiliar with, and they go, "It's not a bird of prey." And I, I got whatever the other stuff is, we're okay with what it is, mm-hmm. so we're gonna eat it. So turkeys are kosher because they pretty much decided that it made sense for it to be kosher, even though nobody heard of it, and there was yeah. no, there's no like good precedent they basically were just like the turkey's gonna be kosher yeah and this is not the only new world bird that has a really questionable kashrut status um as i may or may not have mentioned previously i used to live in florida they used to live in south florida to be specific and there are a lot of these ducks called muscovy ducks and if you ever mm. want to go down a rabbit hole you can look up the kashrut of a muscovy duck because to this day, people do not agree on the kashrut of a Muscovy duck. And frankly, I think most people just don't bother eating them. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't believe it is a common breed of duck uh, that is consumed, but... I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't. Yeah, no, I, there's no reason why you couldn't. You just have to catch one so that you can yeah. shaft it. Yeah, that that's the problem because you're you're not supposed to hunt them. You're supposed to, except obviously, if you need the food to survive, that's a different issue. But but there's no problem with like trapping as long as you don't yeah. harm the bird. If yeah. you if you humanely trap the bird and then you just got a bird there and then you can shut it, and there's no problem. There's no actual problem with with doing that with a wild bird. It's just um, a pain in the butt. Yeah, no, it's it's not the easiest, though not tardis. For a moment, I was gonna, I was going to say, were well, you going to start talking about flamingos? And it's like, wait, no, flamingos are in Africa too. And so I, lo- I just looked. It's like, no, there are flamingos in Israel. Are they native there? The native range extends through e- from South Africa along, not as much the east coast, the west coast of Africa, except kind of from the middle Africa through to. There's a gap kind of along uh, southern Morocco, but it then Spain, Mediterranean, France, parts of Italy, including Venice, Turkey, Cyprus, Israel, the, and then it, the range keeps going back down along um, the Africa's basically the entirety of Africa's east coast. So yes, the the native range of flamingos includes Israel. Huh. Well. That's not a Thanksgiving bird, though. I don't know if anyone's ever, if they are kosher or not, though. Yeah. I I I know they eat shrimp. They get their color from eating shrimp. Is it shrimp or is it krill? I thought it was krill. It might be krill. I don't know. You know birds better than I. I'm still pretty novice at this. Also, if you really want to watch an interesting, something interesting about birds of the new world... I've sent this to Evan before, 
and we will include it in the show notes. There is an excellent 20-minute video. I thought it was very funny. Mm-hmm. There is an excellent video called, it's about state birds. Oh, yes, I remember that one. That one's good. Because so many states share state birds. Okay. The title of the video is The State Birds Are Garbage by Jam2Go. It is excellent. I would strongly recommend it. And I would absolutely recommend that you watch it and then get angry about state birds and also learn a little bit more about the history of flamingos in South Florida. Because... Mm -hmm. Frankly, for a long time, people did not think that there were native flamingos in South Florida. And as it turns out, courtesy of a flamingo running around on, if I recall correctly, a military airstrip, (laughs) it turns out there are, in fact, flamingos in Florida that are native. That is wonderful. So we'd strongly recommend you check that out. And now we should... Let's say you've got... Probably remember that we were going to talk about brining. <laughs> Most of these tangents are probably staying in today because yeah. these ones are turkey day relevant, sort of. Yes. Hey, we got kashrut in there. We got kashrut. We, we got some real. We got some real Jewish content here. Are we up yeah. to pickles. Well, did we have yeah. something before well, pickles? Not really. The next thing with so aside from dry brining, wet brining is basically salt marinade. Sometimes they have sugars. Almost all brinings include, except for very basic steaks and such, include other flavors. It's a great way to get flavor into whatever you're cooking. Uh, there are even cheeses that are brined, like halloumi mm-hmm. and feta. Delicious, uh, delicious cheeses. Exactly. But one Actually, of the big... I, I don't want hmm? feta, full disclosure. Feta, feta is one of my least favorite cheeses. It's a good ingredient. By itself, it's not great. Exactly. Okay, um, I, I used it the other day uh, as... In in tikka marsala because I couldn't find paneer. You can make but, paneer pretty easily. Sometimes yeah, I didn't have any milk though. Lame. You should fix yeah. that. Yeah, I bought some and I'm making yogurt with it right now. <laughs> this is such a classic us thing. Just every <laughs> yeah. part of that. <laughs> every part of it. <laughs> anyways, um, anyways, <laughs> we're so good at this. Pickles. Pickles. So pickling uh, yeah. is a type of wet brining. Yes. And also, there's a lot of Jewish history to pickles. There are thoughts that when the Jews were leaving Egypt, they were talking about remembering pickles because they do talk about cucumbers. Um, specifically, hang on. I've got a quote here from Bummy Bar 11.5. Uh, we remember the fish which we were wont to eat in Egypt for not. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. So cucumbers, onions, garlic, these are things that you would make pickles with. And also, there is archaeological evidence that ancient cucumbers were treated in a... That the Egyptians fermented their cucumbers in order to make them a lot more edible because ancient cucumbers were super bitter that it, it's just the varieties that they had there back then. So they would pickle them um, and they'd end up with these like slightly alcoholic, bitter, salty cucumbers. So that mm-hmm. was kind of a, a very classic ancient Egyptian food. Yeah. And it's something that really stuck in the minds of, of the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. 
when they're stuck in the desert and they're just remembering all those foods, they remember those those cucumbers that we would really refer to as pickles today. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so the the, the cucumber is thought to have originated in India. But there was, in ancient times, plenty of trade. A lot of people don't realize that there was plenty of trade between Egypt and Israel and the Levant region with India using the monsoon winds going back and forth. That is part of how the Jewish community in Yemen was established because it was along the trade route as well as the first communities in India, which as Hanukkah is coming up, the some of the first Jewish communities in India, which still exist, do not celebrate Hanukkah. Because they huh. left before the Maccabean Revolt. Huh. Did not know about that, but totally makes sense. Exactly. But so, but, but so, oh, ancient trade, when ancient trade is, is really interesting. One of the biggest items that was traded was ancient pepper. Like black pepper was one of, was a huge commodity for the Rome in, by classical Roman times. So only 2000 years ago, not closer to 4,000 with the the timeline of the Exodus uh, from Egypt. But at that point, Pepper, the Romans, and that's part of why the Romans really wanted to control Israel, is because Pepper flowed through there. Oh, I feel like something we should mention real quick that we haven't previously. We did not mention the Jewish holiday, specifically the Ethiopian Jewish holiday. Oh, I forgot about that, yes. Sigd. So SIGD occurred um, 19 19 days ago from today. It traditionally is 50 days after Yom Kippur, and it it recently became a national Israeli holiday. But it's a holiday that's not really familiar to a lot of American Jews or generally Jews outside of the Ethiopian Jewish community. It is, according to the Beta Israel or Ethiopian Jewish tradition, the date on which God first revealed himself to Moses. So it celebrates accepting the Torah. And it's something we forgot to mention last time, but it's something I'm not incredibly familiar with. And the the Beta Israel, as well as a community of Jews that was established through these ancient trade routes. This is what I was looking for. Sigt was first recognized by Israel as a national holiday in 2008. So... It's not super widely celebrated by non-Ethiopian Jews that I know of outside of outside of Israel, but it's I did once attend a SIG celebration and it was a really lovely event. And it's an aspect of Jewish history that many people are not familiar with, and I recommend you read read about it more. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, Moving so, on, yeah, Moving <laughs> to on. an American holiday. That's we have to mention holiday. it. I feel bad that we didn't. I, I feel very Ashkenormative that I didn't think to mention it two weeks ago in our yeah. podcast, or four weeks ago in the previous podcast. And yeah, <laughs> it's something that we, as people who are trying to be more aware of of the world around us, and as members of a global community and a greater Jewish community. We want to be more aware of absolutely as close to being as Ashkenazim as as we are aware we are. And that the majority of American Jews and the, the plurality of worldwide Jews are Ash are of primarily Ashkenazi descent. 
so and it we are both Ashkenazi, so it's what we're most familiar with, but there are multiple, multiple Jewish communities throughout the throughout the world and because of the various historical parts of the diaspora, which we will I'm sure get into more details about each one at various different times. Yeah. So uh, but, <laughs> but then the next one in one of these articles they used the next thing in one of these articles that you is linked is preserving food in the shtetl as that as if that's not Ashkenazi. Oh yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Hold on, I still got there's more about pickles. We got more there pickles. Is. Yes, it is pickling though, but yes. Yeah. Okay. There's more on pickling in the Talmudic period. Yes. Great quote from the Talmud about pickling. Talmud says, uh, salting is like hearing and marinating is like cooking. This is from Masachat Chulin, 97B. Does anyone know? <laughs> if you're really going to fact check me on that one. Uh, but this is is a, a kashrut statement, and they go on to talk about how pickling food counts as a method of cooking. So in the same way that you can't cook meat and dairy together, you also can't pickle them together. So you can't, say, make a feta in the same jar that you're pickling, I don't know. Corn beef. A corn beef. Corn beef is pickling. Yeah. So you can't do that in the same jar. Mm -hmm. You got to do that separately because those still count as cooking. But on the other hand, you were also allowed to salt your food on Shabbat, which, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I don't, okay. You know, but I mean, effectively what the argument seems to be is that the amount of salt you're adding and the time that you would be adding it for is not long enough to substantial, to change the item as if you were cooking, as if you were brining it. Um, yeah. So, I mean. Which actually makes me wonder, what are those requirements? It's going to be a time to, a time amount curve. Yeah. And I think they would have, they would probably have come up with a semi-arbitrary answer. But mm-hmm. I think the fact of the matter is they really didn't have the <laughs> culinary food safety knowledge or, or whatever it is to be able to say, okay, this is when... Um, Pickling alone makes something safe for consumption mm-hmm. without adding heat. Yeah. And they would not have known that. And a lot of pickles would have done would have been done with a uh, hot brine. Yeah. So I, I think that's I feel like there are definitely rabbis today who would have commentary on that if we asked kashrut experts or pickling experts. I'm sure they'd have a lot of opinions about that one. Unfortunately, uh, I just have no idea. <laughs> and you're and I don't think they did either. No. Um, back when. So, uh, there are some fun facts about pickles. Yeah. That they are super old and Jews have been doing it for so long that the Jews escaping Egypt missed their dang pickles. That is correct. Though, as we've mentioned before, and something that is a little more Ashkenazi centered in the shtetls and, well, a lot of the world, but the shtetls especially, were very poor. So preserving any food you could, you wanted to get every calorie out of what you produced. Oh, absolutely. And pitl- pitling was a great way to do that for preser- for pitling your, your summer vegetables in the midst of harvest season to have food all year round. 
yeah and another uh, uh, just something to think about in terms of that is I mean I don't know much about the weather back then but one of the things that's really nice about pickling is that if you've got high enough salt concentration um it could be really warm or it could be really cold and you're probably going to be okay in a way that you might have a lot of trouble with if you're say uh drying the meat yeah that's correct if you're drying the meat you actually want it to be relatively cold you want it because that will uh, create a low you want a lot of cold air generate a but you want cold dry air yeah you and want you cold dry air can't guarantee that you might have a, a cold and damp climate correct which I mean, i'm not which i think a lot of russia is or well not a lot of the pale of settlement i should say i believe is a colder wetter climate yeah which which would not be a great environment for drying meat and nope. you might like your jerky but uh, your jerky's gonna get moldy exactly the one of, not though another thing is dried you don't really see fish jerky but you do see a lot of pickled fish and brined fish you don't see I, dried I fish have seen as much dried. i've seen it but it's not as com- nowhere near as common you can dry you, yeah, you can dry fish and i have seen in the supermarket uh fish jerky usually atlantic cod or yeah. salmon you see, it, you see it in dog treats, which I yeah. guess would probably be totally eat edible for human. So I, if I recall correctly, I need to find a proper source on this, but I believe a lot of the native Alaskan groups would dry fish and chew on it. I think it actually might have been a whale. I was just saying, I thought I think it was turkey. seal or whale. I think it's seal or whale. Yeah. Never mind. Those aren't fish. No, I, I've I have had fish jerky and it is tasty, uh, but it is less common. Whereas brined and pickled fishes are very common. A lot, very stereotypically Ashkenazi, is pickled herring. Ooh, <laughs> I like okay. it. Okay, I know I am you a don't like fish. hater, but I have I stopped eating fish when I was seven. So like anything I say about like not having a lot of experience with turkeys and also not liking turkeys, it's a lot worse for fish. <laughs> Full disclosure, I do not know much about fish. I yeah, yeah. I know about, I mean, I know about like fishes, but in, as, a food, yeah. as I, a food, I have cooked salmon a few times, didn't eat it, made it for other people. Mm-hmm. So. No, I, I, I mean, I enjoy fish, but so pickled herring, is actually primarily from the Netherlands, the Dutch, because her- herring grows in the cold, water- cold waters of the North Atlantic. And while there is some access to that in, Ru- in the Pale of Settlement, because I don't want to talk about the Russian Empire and Poland, Lithuanian Commonwealth, to describe at various points in time the accurate things, the Pale of Settlement for this, for right now, is standing in for that. It's, I think, also the most accurate term. When we talk about, like, I, I would. I may have occasionally mentioned this, but I would describe myself as most mostly Lithuanian Jew, but mm-hmm. that's not really the most accurate term because Jews kind of got pushed around in the area. We were not tied to the Lithuanians in any way, shape, or form. It was kind of where our ancestors ended up before they ended up coming to America. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of my family also came from. Lithuania and most Ashkenazi Jews will have 
at least some connection to Poland and or Lithuania because of after, after the Rhineland massacres in the 12 and 1300s, Jews got pushed to the east into the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is the first place where they had relative freedom since the Roman conquest. It had been a long time. And the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was then taken over, was then conquered by Pro- the Holy Roman Empire, Prussia, and the um, and the Russian Empire, and broken apart at various levels due to both infighting and invasions from outside. And then those Jews got pushed around within the Russian Empire and Germany, and the various German states, I should say. And so that's why, and that's also why Yiddish became a separate language as opposed to just writing German with Hebrew letters, is because it was it became its own language when Jews were forced out of Germany and, and into places that didn't speak German. Also worth noting, um, Yiddish is not a monolith. I know it's often mentioned that way, and it was very much a shared language throughout the whole area. But there are some different, there are a bunch of different dialects that are interesting to hear about. Absolutely, and it, nor is it the only Jewish Euro, European Jewish language, which yeah. all all have Hebrew derivatives as well. But Ladino is the other is the other major one. Ladino, Judeo Arabic. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be European, but yes. No, there, not, Euro- not European. It, it, but there's it, a, the di- diasporatic is, languages. Yeah, there's a lot of. Well, Judeo Arabic was spoken in Egypt, yeah. for example. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of other smaller Jewish languages, many of which were killed off, not completely, but, you know, mostly destroyed by the Holocaust or or in the many massacres that followed the Holocaust mm-hmm. in areas in the Middle East. So there are a couple of Jewish language institutes that have popped up. I, I feel like I sent this to you, Evan, not that long ago. Mm. There were a bunch, there were like eight different non-Yiddish Jewish languages being taught by some university. I don't remember seeing that, but I'm very interested. I'd love to see that. But when I at Rosh Hashanah, the shul I went to for for Rosh Hashanah that my dad grew up going to, has at least for the last few years, it's been the same guy who sings Enkelohenu in Ladino, and he's beautiful voice as well. And I'll, if I can find a clip of it, I will link it in the show notes and I'll send it to you. Also, given that it is timely, Hanukkah is about to start. Actually, by the time. We do our next episode. Hanukkah will be gone. Hanukkah will have come and gone. But there is a lovely Ladino Hanukkah song called Ocho Pandalitas that is on my playlist. Ooh, and you'll have to send that to me. I'd recommend it. It's, it's very nice. Mm-hmm. And I guess for, before I forget, anyone who doesn't know, Ladino is Judeo-Iberian. So it's mostly Judeo-Spanish, but it is technically, I believe a mix between Spanish My and Portuguese. My understanding is that there are also variations of Ladino that were spoken in Italy. Yeah, because um, a lot of people who fled during the Inquisition came to Italy. Yeah, so a lot went to Italy, a lot went back to the Middle East, which is why the Sephardi are frequently considered part of Sephardi or the Middle East. Though a lot also went to the Netherlands and the oldest Jewish communities in England uh, are also from are also Sephardi ones, not Ashkenazi. Oh, here we go! Aha! I found it. 
Helma posted a, an article about it. Awesome. Okay, I will post a link to it. It was Oxford. The Oxford School of Rare Jewish Languages in the UK has launched its inaugural semester of courses in 12 Jewish languages belonging to the Aramaic, Arabic, and Turkic language families. The list of languages, Baghdadi, Judeo-Arabic, Classical Judeo-Arabic, Judeo-French, Judeo-Greek, Judeo-Italian, Judeo-Neo-Aramaic, Judeo-Persian, Judeo-Tat, Judeo-Turkish, Karayim, Ladino, and Yiddish. So, really if you're interested, yeah, if you're interested in any of them, know that Oxford is offering classes, application for classes beginning in Michaelmas term are not, are now closed, but you can apply for classes beginning in Hillary and Trinity terms 2022. I have no idea what that means. Michaelmas, I think in a Neil Gaiman book, I want to say it's in Good Omens. Here we go. The application deadline. Application deadline for classes beginning in Hillary term 2022 is Monday, 3rd of January, 2022 for Trinity term Monday, the 11th of April. So So if you know anyone at Oxford, I would not be surprised if you can access these online. If you can access them online, I would be curious just to audit them. Yeah, this is awesome. That sounds really neat. Yeah. So do you know what... Locks, um, the full name for locks is basically just you take salmon, you put salt, normally salts and sugar and spices in it, and you press it to get as much moisture out. And that's it. It's really easy. I'll link a, I will link a good recipe in the show notes for anyone who does want to make it. I have another brining recipe that I have done a couple mm-hmm. of times and enjoyed a lot and would strongly recommend, mm-hmm. especially the, I am a Jew as you may have figured out by now. Uh, I'm Jewish. I do not do great with lactose. Many other Jews do not do great with lactose. Something that imparts like a fun, kind of cheesy, kind of funky flavor that you can Mm -hmm. add to your food if you're averse to, say, a Parmesan, which doesn't actually have lactose in it, but that's a side note. Mm -hmm. Many people are averse to cheese for whatever reason. But I have I have salt cured egg yolks before. Oh, I still need to make that. You told me so many times. They sound so good. They're delicious. So what I did was I took six egg yolks. Mm-hmm. I believe I did a cup of salt and a cup of sugar. Yeah, one to one ratios in that sort of brine. And that sort yeah. of brine are very common. Um, and then on top of that, I had like a tablespoon or two of rainbow peppercorns. Mm-hmm. That's black, white, and pink. Pink ones not actually being peppercorns. But that's a side note. Mm-hmm. They have a lovely flavor. So yes. I did that. I had a bunch of cardamom pods. And I had a bunch of herbs de Provence. Mm-hmm. And I stuck them in my spice grinder. I actually, actually it might not have been a spice grinder. I might have made a food processor. But anyways. Ground them. them. Grounding them all up the best as I could. Stuck some whole egg yolks in there and covered them up and let them cure. Mm -hmm. And you end up, I ended up putting them in the, in in, uh, the dehydrator for a little bit because they were taking, they just took a really long time. 
but you end up with like these little nuggets, these little yellow nuggets, and they are packed with flavor. Like really packed with flavor. And because they've been salted, the salt and sugar mixture ends up uh, kind of being like wet sand, which makes mm-hmm. sense because all the moisture has been absorbed into the into the salt and sugar mixture, mm-hmm. and lots of salt and sugar has been absorbed into uh, into the yolks. So you end up with the flavor from the salt and the sugar, and um, and the floralness of the herbs, and and a little bit of spice. Uh, you end up with this really flavorful little nugget and you grate it on there. And what you also get is a lot of underlying flavor from an egg yolk. And if you've ever broke, if you've ever broken a yolk over, over toast or whatever, you know, that egg yolks have kind of their, this natural umami funkiness. Mm -hmm. That's just so delicious. I just thought Uh, of something that'd be really good. Have you ever had duck eggs? I don't think so. I've had quail eggs. Quail eggs are nice, but they're a pain to break because they're so tiny. Yes, Duck- but you can get them at Costco. That is true. It's <laughs> um, the advantage. Yes, and and, all, and most Asian grocery stores that I've been to as well. Um, that's where I bought mine, actually. But the duck eggs I bought at the farmer's market years ago, and they're a little bigger than chicken eggs, but they are so savory and so much more flavorful. So I'm now imagining doing this, the cured yolk, except with duck. Uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> That's what I'm imagining right now. It sounds that delicious. would be so cool. I feel like that came, oh, Guga Foods. There is a YouTube channel mm-hmm. called Guga Foods. And people, this guy dry ages all sorts of weird stuff and has a great time doing it. Um, so if you're interested in dry aging, mm-hmm. would recommend you check out his channel. On YouTube, Guga, G-U-G-A, foods. But people were suggesting in his comments, his recent video, he, he dry-aged meat covered in wasabi. Like, yeah, wasabi, not the fake stuff. Oh. And apparently it was fantastic and not spicy at all. But people in the comments were suggesting that he do an experiment where he, where he salt cures all different sorts of eggs. Because he's made, he's made different experiments with different types of eggs before mm-hmm. but that sounds like it would be so cool so if you try that evan you should definitely tell me how that goes if i can get my hands on some duck eggs i'm doing that i want i once made a duck egg on like when it, the first time i bought duck eggs i was like oh this will be fun i'm sure it'll taste a little different i made a duck egg omelet for breakfast is the best omelet i ever had so i made a duck oh, egg wow. omelet for lunch and a duck egg omelet for dinner and i was out of <laughs> eggs nice <laughs> it's just so good um, you know, had you asked me when I still lived in Florida, there was a place that there was like this farmer's market that I used to go to. And every mm-hmm. once in a while, I would see these bright blue eggs. Any guesses yeah. what it was? Oh, pheasant. I don't know. It's big. It's like, it's big. It's too small for an ostrich, isn't it? Emu. Was it ostrich? Ostrich eggs are bigger and they're not blue, aren't they? I don't know. Massive. I have no idea what it was. Oh. It was giant and it was teal. <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell you what it was. Uh, I don't know. Now I also want to grow wasabi. Yeah. Well, let's see if I can find a picture of it. I have no idea what those things were. I'm trying to find a picture because I really, I would just see them and I'd see like a, 
a stack of them. Oh my god, they're huge. I'm trying to figure out what it is. I am googling because I never found it. I I don't remember what they were. This may be a tangent, but we should skip because I don't remember what the bird was. <laughs> I don't mean to waste they were the huge. Okay, so... They were like oh, five inches of... tall. Oh, look. Okay. I found it. Yes. What is it? It's an emu egg. Yeah, it's an emu. Emus are fun. I'm going to show you a picture of this thing. So there's... Okay, think, oh, okay. So, <laughs> hello, folks. Since we've gone on many tangents, we may as well stop here. This one was a mess. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, we did get a suggestion for a sign-off from one of our... Okay, it was my sister. <laughs> one of our lovely listeners. My sister. <laughs> But anyways, she suggested she brewed, he brewed, and now it's time for you to brew. I liked it. Yeah. So, happy brewing. Happy brewing. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of She Brews, He Brews, a Jewish fermenting podcast brought to you by myself, Evan Harris, and Allison Shea. This podcast was edited by Evan Harris and is produced by Evan Harris and Allison Shea. As always, you can find the podcast, along with our show notes and full podcast transcripts uh, on our website, as well as you can find the podcast on Instagram at Jewish Fermentation Podcast. Please remember to drink responsibly, and thank you for listening.